Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. I'd like to say that uh, journalist, broadcaster and long-time BBC race caller J.A. McGrath is with me this morning. Croc, good to see you. Yeah, great to see you, Nick. And did you enjoy your, your day at Cheltenham yesterday? I did. I thought it was fantastic. The atmosphere was, uh, it was unreal. And uh, I felt it was almost like the festival. I thought it was uh, particularly uh, Paddy Brennan capturing the moment uh, when he crossed the line on, uh, on night salute, uh, punching the air. There was a roar from the crowd as they, as they left the gates as well. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was just a special day. It wasn't 33,000. Yeah, he bookended the card, Paddy Brennan, with two wild celebrations. We're going to be talking to him later as well. But a big developing story overnight. You'll have heard earlier in the week about the raid on an unlicensed Irish premises on the border of County Kildare and County Leash in Monastrevin in Ireland. And you'll have also heard earlier in the week that two trainers were, were caught up in that drugs raid. And they were named yesterday as trainers Ted Walsh and Liam Burke. Ted Walsh gave extensive quotes uh, to the Racing Post and to RTE yesterday, Liam Burke likewise. But Paul Kimmage in the Irish Independent has really put some meat on the bones of this story, and that was published late last night, Jim. What more do we know now? Well, it's, uh, it's explosive stuff that Kimmage has come out with, and uh, you know he's been leading the way, hasn't he, with this, uh, with this whole story, and he's kept at it. Uh, so, I mean, what do we know? What do we know more? I thought, I thought the most disturbing feature of it was just what you said there, unlicensed. You know, you, you've got horses that are with registered trainers, with licensed trainers on licensed premises where the authorities have power over them, and yet they're able to take them to unlicensed places. And that is very, very worrying. And they're doing that, it is said, for treatment by a man that has been named by the Racing Post as John Warwick, a therapist. Some have described him as a, as a quack, but he is a, a, a qualified vet, but he's no longer practising as a vet, who has for many years developed a reputation as a therapist who can get horses sound again more quickly after, after tendon, tendon injuries. That is his stock in trade. But the Department for uh, Food, Agriculture and the Marine in Ireland, with the assistance of the guards, have gone in and raided a premises that he uses. It's not, he doesn't own it. He uses these premises, um, rents boxes there, trainers then come in, have the horses treated and leave. But they have raided these premises and they have found unlabeled substances that are unlawful for use in Ireland. And he, his defence is that he was taking those substances to Q8, but in his words, it's not dope. And that's only the beginning of it. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of blurred lines here. You know, there's, there's um, the fact that licensed uh, trainers are using this man and also are on, uh, have been quoted 
uh, by the Racing Post, uh, Jesse Harrington being one, saying very, very much uh, in favour of the treatment that, that he's been able to give these horses. I think Ed Dunlop also has, is mentioned in that report. Well, Snow Ferry, for his, Snow most, Ferry. his most famous patient. If you yeah, know. yeah. So, so, you know, those trainers would actually be coming out in favour of Warwick. But the fact is that he's not licensed. And uh, also, he's been raided. Now, first of all, why, why are these authorities carrying out the raid? Mm. Uh, they've been tipped off. Um, you know, Jim Bolger said quite openly, there are substances coming into Ireland. Uh, where are they going? He's asked the question. So are we getting closer? The two main questions that remain unanswered for all the you know, excellent investigative work done by Paul Kimmage that's been published today, the two questions that remain unanswered, what is the nature of these substances that have been found? And second, who has tipped off the Department for Food, Agriculture and the Marine? Where has the investigation started? What's the source of the investigation? Has it come from the United States? There's been a, a suggestion that there's a, a US involvement in this. Has it come from from Great Britain, where Warwick is, is based primarily. The other fairly explosive detail that's come out in Kimmage's piece today is that the owner of the premises that Warwick uses is one of the head lads to, to Aidan O'Brien, who says he knew nothing about the ownership of this, of this yard. Yeah, well, he's, he's actually saying that, um, that uh, Warwick was actually there and, and actually carried on his work, um, and he was asking questions of, uh, of Paul Kimmage uh, when he was actually being interviewed, asking him almost as if he didn't, he, almost as if he was oblivious to what activities were going on. But the the, the broad picture, Jim, is that there are all these incredibly high-profile names in Irish racing that are being drawn into this sort of Byzantine web that involves unlawful substances that are, it is said, being administered to to various and sundry horses. Exactly, and that's why the the rules are in place. The rules of racing are in place, and that's why. The stewards and you know the racing authorities have that authority to be actually to be able to go into any stable at any time and check exactly what's in the cabinet exactly and they should be labelled and also there should be a medical uh, a veterinary book there just detailing what medications have been given and uh, you know it's um, that gives you an idea of the level of scrutiny that is involved so when you've got a, a man like Warwick who's who's actually admitted, I think, in, in what well, he has admitted, that, uh, that they will have found substances which were outlawed in Ireland. Uh, you know, this is pretty, pretty explosive stuff. Mm. Very it, explosive. But his, his defence is that it is not dope, whatever he means by dope. We're not entirely sure. The Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board, um, they're very much invitees to this party. I mean, this is an investigation that is... Uh, very much been brought forward by the Department for Food, Agriculture and, and the Marine in Ireland with the assistance of the police. The IHRB were called in when it was found that there were licensed trainers in and out of the premises. And then they have started to order a hair and, and blood test. This is the latest statement from the IHRB this morning, um, just supplied to us a few moments ago. We continue to work with the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine as part of this uh, ongoing investigation. As has been stated previously, the IHRB are committed to ensuring Irish racing operates to the highest standards of integrity and horse welfare. At this point, we will not be making any further comment due to the ongoing investigation mentioned. Uh, Jim, is that enough for the moment? I mean, is there anything more they can or should say? Do they not need to, to try and curry the confidence 
of the of the racing public? Well, they do need to have the confidence of not just the racing public, but uh, society racing in general, uh, people in general. Uh, you know, you know, racing always has a. We always like to use the phrase they have a social license, and it is true. Uh, and and this sort of these sort of reports um, are not favourable to racing. They're damning. So there's an awful lot being said. There's an awful lot that is, at the moment, somewhat unclear or at least opaque. And you sense we're only at the beginning uh, of this story. Noel Mead has been um, booked to, to appear on this show uh, all week. And I don't think we were expecting this turn, turn of events, Noel. Um, good morning to you. Good morning. Um, how damaging do you think this is to, to uh, racing, not just in Ireland, but uh, around the world? Obviously, any time that racing is put into the media with uh, the connection to drugs, or it is damaging to racing, all, well, certainly in Ireland and anywhere it has. But I have to say that the situation we're in at the moment is kind of uh, like a forest fire, if you like, because every time somebody says drug, it's in the paper. Paul Kimmage is a sensationalist journalist. Uh, Jim Bulger has been gone online and said that there has, there's going to, we're going to find a, Lan, a Lance Armstrong. We haven't found a Lance Armstrong. We haven't actually found anything as such by, with all the testing that has been done. No horse has come up positive. Our horses have raced the whole way around the world, in America, in Australia, uh, in Hong Kong, all over. They've passed all tests. In England, France, they've passed all tests. Yet, Jim has come along and stated this and sort of threw it, threw it up in the air. And everyone that thinks, that comes along and says anything, gets into the paper. Now, every journalist picks it up. Now, what happened the other day is probably what they need to do is say what the, what the drugs they found. Because when they come along and say they found drugs, it could be a bottle of Ingham ice. It could be anything that wasn't labelled. doesn't necessarily mean when they found drugs that they found it. could be a box of Panadols for horses, if you know what I mean. So it's, it's a very loose situation to say that they found drugs. Um, I know John Warwick. John Warwick treated uh, Go Native when he got a leg after the champion hurdle. He was treated by vets for... Uh, 18 months and he didn't come sound and he was given up on and he went to John Warwick and John Warwick treated him and he came sound and he actually raced again after that and he wouldn't have raced again but for the fact of the treatment he got from John Warwick. Now a lot of people have used John Warwick for the same reason. Uh, I don't know anything about what other treatment he does, that's the only time I used him for anything and I know that that's what most people did use him for. Maybe he treats for something else, I don't know. But I think until there is, uh, as you say in the start, a little more meat on the bones. Like, coming from the likes of Paul Kimmage is, uh, is not... Any time that Paul Kimmage gets, a, gets uh, any chance to, to write up racing into a, into a bad light, or anything, it doesn't have to be racing, that's what he does. That's, that's the nature of the beast. So I think at the minute it would be very remiss of anybody to say that there was drugs found in Ireland the other day. Uh, Noel, in, in, in 
Paul Kimmage's defence, not that he needs me to defend him, but it, just reading his very extensive report here, a lot of it is simply reporting the questions that he's asked trainers and reporting their answers. And that in itself doesn't make for particularly pretty reading, as there are some trainers he says, do you know John Warwick? And they say, no, I've never heard of him. And then he says, well, here's your horse box going into his stable. And they say, I've got no comment to make. Do you not agree that that doesn't exactly look great for the industry as a whole when people are denying something? If there's nothing to be denied, why would you deny it? Well, as I said to you, John Warwick treated a, treated a horse for me. And in fact, he probably treated two or three horses with legs for me. But it, what, the highest profile one was going to hate him. Um, I'm sure that's what happened. And I'd say, to be honest with you, uh, people are, they don't want to be associated with the situation that's uh, been talked about on Look on Sunday. They don't want their name coming out to say that they had horses in John Warwick so that because anyone might think this. Well, I can tell you that I have never uh, heard of him treating any horses to give them drugs for anything for, uh, to enhance their, their performance. And I, to my knowledge, and from I've been chairman of the race, the Racehorse Trainers Association for quite some time, I've never, I've never come across anything like that. And and most of those, most of the things that happen in racing, a smaller country than England, most things that happen come to the surface uh, eventually. I mean, do you think Ted Walsh has got the right approach here? You you basically say, right, this is the deal. This is why I was here, and. Yeah, try and clarify the situation rather than to render it less clear. Absolutely, and I think that that's why the IHRB should say what they found and 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 say and clear it up straight away before it goes any further. And if they have found something, fair enough, let them say it. But that's the problem. Well, the problem here is 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 people jump to the wrong uh, the, the to the the wrong idea straight away you know this this is what happens I, I i spoke to ted the other day about it and i said said to me he said to me look no he says i prefer i wasn't there he said but i was there and that's what happened he says i was getting our scanned and he said that now i don't i didn't see today's uh uh article by um by um in the in the independent but but uh i know that's what ted was there and i know liam was there the same liam was actually dropping a horse off for somebody else yeah and and he asked Lynn Hillier if he could run his horse later that day and, and she didn't allow him to because the investigation was ongoing but I'm uh, led to believe that the owner of that horse is uh, quite happy with the, with, the, with the situation. So you believe it's a situation the IHRB needs to take more, more ownership of. Does it, does it worry you that they're slight, somewhat latecomers to this party, that this is a, an investigation that's being driven from outside racing and the IHRB are really only in on the coattails of this? Look... The one thing I would like to impress on you and everybody else is the trainers in Ireland want us to play on a level playing field. We all want to play. We all want to play. We don't want anyone to have any to have something that the others haven't got. Like every time uh, that that uh, a horse goes to the races, it's it's only fair that everyone was playing with the same that what he gets is speed and. And, and, and water, and he does not get a, 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 that someone hasn't got a, a hasn't got a leg up from something else. And and uh, 
That's what, that's what we want. So the testing, as far as the testing is concerned, we're delighted to see testing and we're delighted to see people investigating these things and see what happens. But to my knowledge, they haven't found anything of any substance yet. No, you're a, you're a senior, a senior figure. People look to hugely respected, multiple champion trainer. Can, can you give me an idea of the, of the general feeling amongst the training fraternity uh, in Ireland, uh, amongst the trainers in Ireland, um, as, to, as to how they are, are being viewed at the moment? Well, I think most trainers, and, and uh, I say this now, I know he's not going to like me hearing me saying it, most trainers are very annoyed with Jim Bolger. Uh, he's got a chance to stand up and say what, what he said and to, to, if he has anything, to let it be known. He was asked by the Oireachtas to go in and make comment. He refused that. He's, he's just talking, as Aidan described him, as really pub talking. That's what he's saying. He, hasn't, he doesn't appear to have anything. If he has, he hasn't told anyone. So everybody, as far as I can see, and any trainer I have met, is very annoyed with Jim over that. Uh, I think most trainers in Ireland are very annoyed with the way the whole thing has been has been uh, treated by the media, by Paul Kimmage. Uh, everybody that, as I say again, that I know, feel that racing in Ireland is straight and that there's nothing going on. Look, we, Jim came along and said that uh, he felt he wasn't playing against uh, on a level playing field. That would suggest that the horse is trained by the top people. And when we talk about the top people, we have to talk about Aidan, Joseph, Dermot, Willie, Henry, Gordon. They're the six top people in Ireland, right? That they're, if, if Jim, Jim is suggesting that they're not playing, they're not playing with square. Well, to my knowledge, that's a load of nonsense. Well, you know, you know Jim Bolger. Well, I, I know Jim Bolger reasonably well, Noel, and I've, I've spoken to him on this subject. It, would it be worth his while to put his neck on the block like this unless he felt deep down somewhere that he was, he was onto something? Is it, is, it, is it coming from the right place, do you think? Even I don't if you know think where... it's misguided? I don't know where it's coming from. I can't understand it. I can't understand, like, why he would say something like this and then back away and not give and not give uh, uh, give um, put, put as you say again meat on the bones to her or fill fill in the gaps on what, where he's coming from. But why he said it, I do not know. Um, I say most of us or anyone I know is very annoyed about what he has said. Um, no, I appreciate your your thoughts on that and um, clearly this wasn't the way I expected to be uh, chatting to you this morning because uh, you've, you've got a, an important runner at, at Cheltenham the horses are, are running extremely well you're not you're not with us at, at, at Cheltenham this afternoon where, where are you going to be today? I'd be in Punchestown today we have one in Cheltenham three in uh, Punchestown and three in Cork so um, I took the easy option I'm going to Punchestown and you won't mind where you're watching if, if Jesse Evans wins the, the Great Wood Hurdle this afternoon. The subject of a, a significant gamble yesterday. Can you see where that's coming from? Um, not really, no, to be honest. Um, other than the fact that some of the, like David Jennings has tipped him and a few people have tipped him, I suppose. There's, 
quite a big syndicate on him, Tomas Singleton from Cork, and his, uh, um, uh, he's a legion of fans, Tomas, and they're all over there. So whether that had something to do with it or not, I don't know. But I got a text from him last night to say that he was very short price. Now, I look, he's he's a nice horse. He was fourth in the Galway Hurdle. He didn't win the Galway Hurdle. He's plenty of weight. He has a fighting chance. I mean, and just keeping him to the flat the last couple of runs, was that just simply a question of, of not exposing him any more to the, to the hurdles handicapper? Well, we didn't want to be winning. A, a, you know, if we're going to win a handicap, we're going to try and win a good one. Uh, every time you win a handicap, you go up. So if uh, he's high enough as he is at the moment. So this looked like a, a race to have a, have a go at. The, the, with owns five pound off, it sort of gives him a... Uh, a good chance, and he doesn't have to give away that much weight. He's nine to two at the moment in what looks an incredibly competitive race. There's not been any more rain at Cheltenham overnight. Is this a horse that wants pretty decent ground, though? Yeah, I'd say the ground would be perfect. Uh, he doesn't like it too heavy. Uh, I, he doesn't like it fast, but he doesn't like it too heavy. I'd say the ground should be okay. Uh, he's a little bit of a nervous horse, uh, but he has been over there since Wednesday. Uh, he went over with some of Gordon's, and uh, they, I sent him over early. And uh, he settled in well, and, and Emma Murray, who's with him, is delighted with him. She said he's he's settled in really well, and he's been down on the middle of the track every day, and she's had him out, and sort of. And she said he settled down well, which was the idea. We were hoping that that might happen with him when he'd be over there for a while. Uh, Noel, you're quite well represented, as you were saying, at, at, at Punchestown today. Um, Six Shooter looks to have a pretty good chance. Yeah, he was very impressive in, in Galway. I impressed me, and I suppose he impressed a good few people. Uh, we've always liked this horse. Uh, he was very... Uh, he won of the four-year-old's first two runs on, uh, in bumpers, and uh, he won his first run last year. Ran a little bit disappointing after that, but he, he was very shelly last year. He's, he's filled out a bit. Not a huge horse, but uh, he was very impressive in the way he took defences in Galway. Ho- hopefully... Uh, Wood. He'll he'll he'll, uh, he'll do that again today. He's he's schooled well since, and uh, despite the fact we have a change of jockey, as Sean is injured, uh, he has Brian on up today. So uh, hopefully he'll jump as well as he did today. Um, the trip is a help, and uh, might like the ground just a little bit softer than it is. But but look, it's 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 the ground is okay. It's 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 uh, it, it's uh, good to yielding and and. Uh, there's been plenty of uh, mist on that over the, yesterday and today, so hopefully it'll keep it at that. Noel, it's not going to escape your notice because you're, you're such close associations to the track and it's, um, its proximity to you that, that Navin is celebrating its, its centenary uh, at the moment. It's a, it's a very special place for those, those who haven't been and quite unlike any other race course in Ireland, uh, you must be very proud of your association with it and the fact that it, it's got to 100 years. Absolutely, uh, I'm chairman in Navin, which is which is uh, fabulous to be chairman in the in the um, times that's in it and uh, coming up on its hundredth celebration. Uh, now, as I say, chairman, I'm very much the quiet end of the thing. Aidan uh, 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 is doing the is the manager, and he does that. Does the they've been put on the staff there have been doing a great job putting putting this these celebrations together. Um, yeah, Navin went through a, a dodgy spell uh, 25 years ago or so, just before the HRI was was established, when the racing board was in charge of it, it almost got closed down, which would have been a disaster because it's, uh, I, 
I think you are there, Nick. It's it's one of the finest tracks in Ireland. Yeah, it's one of the fairest, uh, big galloping track. Uh, you can bring Arsene Avon and uh, push time out, and you can expect him to run to his merit because he doesn't just two big long straights down the back and up the straight, and two very gentle bends. And uh, it's it's a good place to bring one. It's it's tough. The the, the finishes, you know, will rise for the last four and a half, and it's it's a tough finish. So if you get beaten in Navin, you get beaten because you're not good enough. Uh, the, all the good horses have been there. Like uh, starting off with Arkel, like I mean, he started his winning spree in, in Navin in a three mile maiden hurdle uh, when he wasn't even favoured. Uh, but uh, every every good horse you can think of has raced around, has raced around Navin, and trainers in general, jump trainers would love to bring the horses there to run them at, at any time because it's. You know, it's a good grass track, and you get when the, when it's a great test. I I love my track. I remember coming to see uh, to see you. I think when you had Go Native, uh, he was heading toward the Champion Hurdle, and we we went there on on Boyne Hurdle Day and had a had a fantastic day there. So you know, I would thoroughly recommend it to anyone who hasn't uh, been to Navan, particularly if you're in the UK and you're heading over for a trip to Ireland uh, to visit the races. I would uh, I would put it on your on your bucket list. Uh, no, you mentioned all those great names of Irish racing a few moments ago and you mentioned Henry and Gordon and Willie and Aidan and Joseph um, you were too modest to put yourself uh, among that list but it's been a it's been a more than productive um, couple of years for you and and interestingly a lot of success where you started on the flat you know Royal Ascot winning trainer in the 70s back on the flat and jumping how much are you enjoying um, this particular phase of your career yeah, very much Yes, very much. I, I, uh, well, they're much easier to train. I've, I've always been slagging the flat trainers about this. I said, if you can train jumpers, if the dodge will train and flat options, they get away with more of the train, flat trainers. So the less injuries and easier to, uh, not as much work with flat horses. So I do enjoy it. Um, it's just over the last couple of years, Nick, it's become very, very difficult to buy uh, jumping horses. And, uh, for that reason, we changed some of the some of the around. We sort of probably next year would be fifty fifty, uh, with the amount of flat horses and jumpers we'll have. It just about three years ago, I started buying a few, and a couple of pals of mine, myself, bought a few. Uh, I had shares in them, and we've been lucky too. We've been lucky with a few horses that have uh, both been sold, or uh, we're lucky enough with a couple that we kept as well. You know. And I think it's it's well worth having a look back at, at Helvick Dreams win in the in the Tattersall's Gold Cup. I can see a smile breaking out on your on your face again. The form's not done too badly subsequently, has it? No, it was the fourth time he had run against Broome that year. Uh, we fancied him the first day in the ace, an enlisted race, and, and Broome absolutely dialed around. And it was the only bad run that horse, uh, my horse had all year. And then he went to the car and the ground was good. And he finished fourth, and uh, then he went. He went. Was back to the court again. He, he he finished second to him, I think. And Colin came in to me the day of the Tattersall's Gold Cup into the into the um, parade ring, and he said to me, "No, he says we could beat this fella today." He said, "I," but he said, "Don't expect me to be there early." He said, "I'll I'll just be there at the death," and he did exactly that. He said he he. Uh, sat behind him and just he said I went too soon the last day he said I shouldn't have went to him as soon as I did and we had a lot of rain overnight and the ground was soft He's, he grows a leg when he gets soft ground and 
he's he just he gave him a peach of a ride. He's like I heard you talking about him there on the shows recently about Colin Keane. How good is Colin Keane? Yeah. Colin Keane is 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 one of the best flat jockeys that arrived in Ireland since. Probably, well, obviously we have can't forget Pat and and and, and uh, Johnny and Mick, but Mick Canan to me was the best flat jockey I've ever seen. And Colin is getting up there. He's he, his uh, performances uh, this year have been incredible. My thanks to Noel Mead. Let's um, look back on yesterday's Paddy Power Gold Cup from Cheltenham because it was an exhilarating race run at a scorching pace from the outset. However, horses who were held up never really threatened to get into it. Uh, Jim McGrath alongside me. Jim, you were at Cheltenham yesterday. Atmospherically, what was it like? Oh, fantastic. It was, it was back to the old days, wasn't it, really? Um, you know, back to the Pigwell, uh, <laughs> Pigwell Bay days. It was, um, it was really... Um, uh, I just thought it had, it had everything yesterday. I think that I think people are screaming to get out of the house as well. They're trying. They're, they're just wanting to get out to events. And I think yesterday was a real, a real sign of that. Uh, people were enthusiastic. Big crowd, you know. And full credit to Cheltenham. They, uh, they now have the facilities to actually cater for that crowd. And it felt comfortable. Thirty-three thousand felt comfortable. So as a punter just walking around, you were. You were, yeah. you were very happy. Very, very happy, very comfortable. And, uh, you know, I think that's what uh, Sam Vesti in his time, uh, he had in mind. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's been able to pull it off and also subsequent chairman. Yeah, the legacy is certainly living on. Let's take a look back at the race. A midnight shadow, a terrific winner for Sue and Harvey Smith and, and Ryan Mannier sitting in fourth at the moment. The orange cap. A, a blistering pace set by last year's winner, Cool Cody. But in fairness to Cool Cody, when he departed two fences from home, he wasn't completely done with, Jim. No, and it looked like he was going to pull it off again, didn't it? You know, he'd been, he's just a bold front runner and he just loves his course. And uh, I thought coming around the turn, I mean, you wouldn't have wanted to bet against him. He was going, he was full of running, I thought. Uh, but have a look at Ryan just in behind with the orange cap. Uh, he's riding a, a very confident race, isn't he? Just sitting in behind their horses. You know, got a good record at Cheltenham and uh, obviously likes the place very much, but um, it was good to see him back in the uh, winner's enclosure after a bit of an absence. You know, he's, um, he's a horse with a lot of talent and interesting afterwards that uh, Sue Smith saying that he's going to go for the uh, King George. And, and why not? Because there are few other places realistically for him to go. Uh, the horses trained by Paul Nichols, who are having their first starts for the yard. Simply the bets currently in third eventually fades a little, but has run very well right on the sharp end throughout. As we see Cool Cody depart, he's up okay. Uh, and Laylor, who rallies for third, uh, they're, they're probably both horses that Nichols can can build on these performances with. Yeah, definitely. Um, Laylor or Lawler, as he's, uh, well, I think he's named after Peter Lawler, uh, but he's a. Uh, He's a, uh, a horse who's obviously got a, a lot of potential. As you can see there, he's run on very, very well. Uh, ridden a little bit differently. Uh, and uh, he looks like he's going to settle nicely into that sort of trip. And Protectorat, who the, was the runner-up under a big weight last season's Grade 1 winning novice, Dan Skelton says he's going to go to the Many Clouds at Aintree, potentially, followed by the Savills Chase at Leopardstown. It's great to see the... UK-based leading trainers targeting Irish races. We need a bit more of that and vice versa. Yeah, there hasn't been a, a much uh, of uh, the crossover in recent times, but uh, how, strong are the, how strong are the Irish? That's the whole, that's the whole point. And um, the reason many are saying, well, what's the point in going over?
Well, I'm very pleased to say that it is Sue Smith joining us on the line now. I think there was a, a coin toss and very happy that, uh, that Sue's won the day because uh, this programme's had plenty of Harvey in the past and gives me a, a chance to congratulate you, Sue. What a terrific horse, very game. How is he this morning? He's in absolutely great form this morning. He can't wait. He's just now going to the field and uh, he really is in fantastic form with himself. When you went into yesterday's race, Sue, did you feel that you, you had him in as good form as any time in the last couple of years? Uh, yeah, definitely. He uh, he had a run in the old Roan uh, chase at uh, Aintree and he ran an absolutely cracking race. So uh, we just sort of kept steady away with him and then you know brought him back up to where he was yesterday and he was in really as best form as we could possibly have him in going there. And the way that you were talking about him yesterday and the way that Ryan's talked about him and Harvey's talked about him in the past suggests that you really believe that he's right out of the top draw. Do you think he's just been marking time a little bit? Uh, well, he, I think now he's proved yesterday that he really is uh, a top-class horse. Um, you know, this is why possibly the, the King George is maybe on the agenda because we felt that Kempton was perhaps an easier three miles than maybe something like the Gold Cup or whatever. But, you know, if he gets the three miles around Kempton, then we'll know a bit more about him that way. What's the secret to him, do you think? He's got a big engine. And, uh, you know, he just wants to do it for you. He just loves to get out there and stick his head in front. Was it obvious from the first moment you had him what kind of a horse he was, what sort of talent he was? Uh, I think pretty much so, because uh, in his first bumper, we went to Newcastle with him as a three-year-old, and he, he won his bumper really very well there. Um, you know, we've had a, the odd blip on the way with him, but uh, nothing serious, and uh, he's just gone from strength to strength. Talking of going from strength to strength, Ryan Mannion needs to retire more often if he's going to ride horses like that. Well, I, I don't know, but he came back. I mean, nobody could have given that a better ride than what he did yesterday, you know, and he is a very good jockey. And I was really interested to hear him talking about the, the guidance that you and, and in particular Harvey give him with, with his riding and just his, his sort of mental approach to the game. How much do you think that Harvey's guidance has, has helped him? I think a great deal. It's, it's Harvey that always speaks to him in regards of his riding and... Uh, I think it has helped him a lot, and I think he's very appreciative of that. And just in terms of when he came back, was there always a job for him? As soon as he came back, were you just thrilled to have him and wanted to get him on horses as soon as possible? Well, he, you know, we, we weren't 100% sure that he was coming back, but then when he approached us and said, you know, could he come and ride out, obviously you're not going to turn him down because of the job that he did for us before. You know, riding Aurora's encore the way he did that day, you can't dispute that he's not a good jockey. Tell me a little bit about the owners of this horse. I just saw you em embracing Mrs. Clark there in the in the winners' enclosure. Uh, yeah, very very good people. They they came to us. Um, well, I can't remember now. Three or four years ago, and uh, just rang up out of the blue, and he said that he'd like to come and see us about maybe owning a racehorse. That was Mr. Cyril Clark. And they've, um, they've gone on from, you know, strength to strength. They, they first bought Smooth Stepper off of us, which uh, he then wanted to sell. Um, we've sort of more or less stuck to buying young horses for him, and um, it's gone really well. So I'm not suggesting the two are equivalent in any way, but I, just going on body language, I, 
your reaction yesterday, I don't think I've ever seen you so visibly thrilled after a race, not even when you won the Grand National, not even when you won at the, the festival with, with vintage clouds. Was there something particular about yesterday that really got your blood pumping? Well, uh, I mean, it was a hard-fought race, wasn't it? It was a very good race going into, and but for us, you know, we have the one horse that is capable of doing these things, so obviously it does get you very excited when you're bang there with a shout, um, and obviously to win is just <laughs> absolutely wonderful. And the first winner trained in the north of England since 2007. A lot is talked about the strength, relative strength of, of northern jump racing. Did you feel that at all? Did that, did that strike a chord with you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I don't think we get the volume and the quality of horses in the north, and there's loads of good trainers up here. Um, but, you know, that's as it is, and there's no good worrying about that. We just get on and do the best we can with what we've got. Let's take a look back at the opening race yesterday. Jim mentioned this at the top of the show. The celebrations from Paddy Brennan after night's salute was the, the winner. Bonte completed a double for him in the final race. Just look at this horse here, yellow cap. Um, that's a dosh falling at the last. She gets up okay as well. He's, he's found plenty up the hill here, hasn't Jim. He, hasn't he? I mean, he's looked a, a real... You know, if, if this was the trial, you'd say, well, when, when's the big one? Uh, and look at, him, look at Paddy when he goes past the, past the post. Uh, yeah, it was a, that was a Cheltenham, Cheltenham <laughs> Festival-style salute, King salute. Any race at Cheltenham, it doesn't matter now. You get the image of Brennan completely erect in the irons after the race, <laughs> arm aloft, giving it plenty to the crowd. Yeah, yeah, no, it was uh, fabulous. And also, Milton Harris, great to see him, uh, a resurgence after a, a very long spell in the wilderness. Uh, you know, he obviously can train, and... Uh, a man who's dedicated to the game and very emotional after the race. Here's Paddy now. Paddy, some celebrations yesterday. Yeah, Nick, um, I'd missed the crowd, honestly. It was the first time since COVID that the place was erupting when you were going down to the last. And especially in the last race, going out, everyone's like going. Obviously, I was riding a short price favourite, and yeah, I gave it to the master. It was, it was, it was infectious. It was great to watch. Just, I've come to the last race in Bonte in a few moments' time. I just want to talk about that horse night salute very quickly because small uh, stable, albeit one that's been in excellent form this, day, uh, this season, some pretty ordinary efforts latterly on the flat, bought for not much money. Could we be in danger of underestimating this horse? Yeah, I'd probably look as confused as anybody really as to, as to work it out. Um, like I looked to reform this morning, and I'm thinking, mm. Milton, Milton, how how did you pick this one out? But he's absolutely transformed him. And as I say, I don't think the improvement's going to end there. It's just trying to get a gauge on the opposition at the moment, and um, he couldn't have done any better yesterday. I did exactly the same as you. And what I'd forgotten was that the horse had an opening mark of 91 after just two starts for Andrew Balding, and was then put into a, a stakes race. Yeah. If, if, it suggests they thought he was pretty damn good. Well, exactly. So, yeah, look, it's it's trying to find them and get the, you know, you can, you think you can buy the best juveniles and they don't take the jump in her. But this horse is absolutely loving it. He's always looking for the next jump and, you know, brilliant for Milton and it's an exciting time for him. So do you think, do you think he could win a race of higher calibre? Well, yeah, the more, like having time to reflect on the race and have, I'd speak to Milton again, but I'd be recommending if the ground didn't get too heavy a chip so he could go for that um, grade yeah. one there and, he, he's hardened. Like he's, he didn't feel like I was at the bottom of him yesterday, and 
Like obviously the opposition is going to get stronger, but you know, for Milton Harris, the dream's firmly alive, and you can dream. Well, the finale at Chepstow looks a viable target for the horse for sure. Um, I loved, I loved every bit of the the mare's bumper. Um, I'm not quite sure which bits to start with. The one, the one thing I wanted to ask you straight after the race was how on earth you managed to let Connor Brace have a bit of your golden highway up the rail. No one's allowed there, are they, apart from Paddy Brennan? Yeah, I, I, do you know what, as well, when I sensed there was someone there, I sort of knew it was him. And um, <laughs> it was a little bit more comforting knowing it was another one of Fergal's. But, oh, that filly I rode in the last yesterday. It's a long time since I've sat on a filly like that. Seriously? Yeah, she's a... I honestly thought... She did a piece of work on Tuesday, and I walked beside her, and... Um, seen something a bit special and honestly Nick I literally just went out there yesterday and thought I'm just going to stay out of everyone's way I'm going to just go around the white outside and I'm going to go past 17 horses or however many runners there was that's how simple it was she's um she's very very good and you did you you wired the field in old school fashion right round the outside this this Paddy Brennan hair rail um maneuver especially on the old course at Cheltenham how much of an advantage do you think you're getting out there Ah, Nick, look, it's, 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 it's experience and, look, you've got to walk the track, you've got to do your homework, you've got to do your research and you can't tell everybody else, but, look, that's where I go um, and it seems to work. But is it just a question of getting the better ground or is it something particularly about the topography of Cheltenham that you think makes no, that effective it, it's for you? Not, it's, it's not just the, the ground, there's, there's a line, there's an undulation line that sometimes if you can get off a bumpier road, you're going back onto a smoother one. And horses feel that. You want to go down the hill where it's... And if you walk it and walk across the track, you can... There's a big difference of one particular area and there's a big difference about another. It's it's doing your research. Um, that's what brings makes Cheltenham so special. And it, it's such a unique track. And it, it, every, every furlong and every hurl and every jump matters. It's, it's a brilliant track to ride. And is that just something you've accrued over time? Or were there riders when you were younger that you saw doing it and thought, oh, I wonder why they're up to that? Oh, yeah, Ruby Walsh around there was, Jesus, you'd be following him. And I learned so much from him in particular, place he'd be in the race. But, Nick, look, I've obviously been riding for a very long time. And with Cheltenham especially, the experience you gain there over many, many years is, is valuable. And it's not going to happen overnight for a younger jockey, but they're going to obviously, over time, they're going to get better and better. And um, you, you definitely need a horse also. Though it sits on much, much, much younger shoulders, I'd put it to you that Rachel Blackmore is an old head. She's certainly a cool head. She is. As we saw on, on Friday, and what has prompted a lot of debate, and it was, a, it was a controversial race beforehand. Why are there only two runners, Big Valuable Novice Chase? We'll come to that in a bit. My Drogo went, and Gin on Lime also went, except Rachel Blackmore stayed on her back, and so technically not a fall, and... She galvanised her to the effect that she could jump the last and she could come home the winner of the race. So, Jim, let's ask the questions that everybody's been asking. Should she have carried on? Well, I think she should have, you know, and don't forget that these decisions are made in, on, in, in the heat of the moment. You know, she's, she's experienced something which I think mo took most of us by surprise to see a two-horse racing with both of them independently falling or just about falling, one of them. Um, you know, that's you know, you're in you're in a state of uh, shock almost. You know what's going on. Uh, I think you know it's easy for the stewards to sit back later and say she should have taken more time to assess the situation. However, 
you know, this is a this is happening. You know, this is a lightning fast re reflex reaction decision. You know, it's she's sitting there now, uh, and she's shaking shaking the mare up. She gets a response, and I think that's fair enough. And then she continues on. So, you know, I, I think it's a bit a bit wrong to be to be pointing the finger at her and saying that she should have taken more time. You know, I mean. So many things go through your mind, and, and it's been put that you know Dan Skelton, uh, he almost thought of remounting. You oh, know, Harry in, in, yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, Harry Skelton almost thought of remounting. You know, in the spur on the spur of the moment. You know, so it's 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 all happening so quick. It's quite amazing how horse and rider didn't come apart. Now, I said at the time, it's. It's potluck, really, just depending on which way the horse tilts this way or that. And indeed, the mare did stay remarkably sort of still and on one path for, for one that's a, about to fall. But that doesn't reckon with extraordinary balance and str strength in the saddle and strength of leg. Well, incredible. And also the sit, as they say, the sit was incredible, that she was able to maintain her seat uh, and you know, be in that, uh, in that situation. But I, I put the other side to you, Jim. I, I got a text last night from somebody who, who works within racing in a senior position within racing, but in a flat racing yard, who said to me, for what it's worth, I don't think she should have continued. I didn't think it looked great. Well, I was quite surprised. Yeah, I, w I, would, I would be surprised by that. But I took it on board. Yeah, and you're obviously talking about a respected figure, so mm. the person you respect. Um, you know, I, th I think spur of the moment and, and the heat of the moment is something you, that you have to take into account. Uh, and, you know, imagine if she hadn't. Imagine if she had, had actually dismounted. Um, what would have been the reaction then? Well, indeed. I, I have absolutely no problem with, with her carrying on, but I, I do accept the fact that it is now a talking point, whereas it perhaps wouldn't have been yeah. five years ago or well, 10 well, years well, ago, well, people's been, sensitivities and sensibilities toward the game change. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see that. But at the same time, uh, let's give her credit for being an expert horsewoman and also knowing s the situation, feeling what she's got under her and making a decision. Uh, now, that's an interesting point you make. Does, does that mean that as, a, as an industry we need, to, we need to sort of reinforce our trust in those that we license to pilot these horses on the biggest stages? Well, I think you, you, you obviously, by licensing them, you're, you're, in, you're, you're trusting them, aren't you? You're, you're acknowledging their, their expertise in actually giving them a license. Uh, and as we've seen with, with her, I mean, she's, she is an expert horsewoman. So what I'm getting to is that steward's report, was it meaningless to say she should have... Was it just, was it just window dressing? It was written... Uh, you either think she's done something acceptable and responsible within the rules or you don't. It was written uh, hours later or, or minutes, you know, several, a long, a long lapse of time between that race and, and actually sitting down and writing the report and they'd probably watched the, the, the incident umpteen times. So it's unfair on her to be sort of saying, well, you should have done this at that moment when they've got so much time to study it and study films. I mean, I, I think it's... But what your, your question your, or your point about window dressing, I think a lots and lots of stuff has to be... Questions have to be asked, and I think that's the steward's uh, job. Mm -hmm. They have to ask certain questions, so they have to satisfy the public that they have 
asked the question. I that's, just didn't like the wording of it. Yeah, that's fine. So they've asked the question. We're, we're all fine with the fact they've asked the question and they've had a look into it. Yeah. But you're not satisfied with the idea that they've given her a little bit of a yes. slap on the wrist and said, you know, you should have you should have stopped, appraised the situation and then decided what you wanted yeah, to do. Yeah, I mean, and how many... How many seconds does she have to wait before she appraises it? And what and, and what's what appraisal she can she carry out on horseback? Because don't forget, she's not allowed to dismount. So uh, it's a it's a, I think it's a, a bit of window dressing, uh, and it's after the ball, very much after the ball. All right. Earlier in the week, I hosted a webinar on behalf of the Diversity in Racing Steering Group. Uh, entitled Let's Talk About Race. The participants in the webinar were, were Cindy's cricket legend Michael Holding, who has spoken about this issue so passionately and so articulately over the last year and a half. Tony Langham, the chief executive, uh, the chair, I should say, of uh, Great British Racing and chief executive of Lanson's, a reputation management uh, specialist. Uh, Susie Smith, the trainer, and Shireen Daniels, an advocate for anti-racism who's worked significantly in this area. And I began... Um, by asking Michael Holding about the, the real complexities in this area and particularly pertinent to this sport. Mindset, Nick. As I've said to a lot of people, there are a lot of good people out there that will say, I'm not a racist, but they still have racist thoughts. And it's not because they are bad people. They have those thoughts because of their socialization, the way they were brought up, the, what they're accustomed to seeing around them. That is what makes them think that way. As I said on, on television last year when I made my first talk about this thing, this thing seeps into your head like osmosis. It is not something that you go out of your way to try and absorb. It is all around us. So it seeps into our head. And I have had thoughts growing up as a young man that later on in life, I have discovered that there are false thoughts. There are false narratives that people have put into my head. And it happens to all of us. If you go back to that lady in Central Park last year with the dog and that gentleman who asked her to put the dog on the leash, immediately in her mind, she thought, I'll, all I have to do is call the police. The police are white. I am white. This man is black. He'll immediately be considered wrong. And it's not that she was a bad person, but that is just what was in her mind. Later on, she discovered, no, that's not the way it is. Uh, uh, th that, you've just touched on another point that really struck me. And you, uh, I'm right, I think your daughters both live in the United States. Yes. And, and you made the point that how you have to, have to have discussions with them or they have to have discussions with their children about, as, as black people, how they will go out, uh, how, how frightened they are of, uh, of the police just because, because they are black. And I, I've got to say that, I mean, it sounds obvious again, but it really sort of brought it home to me and something I hadn't really considered. And... The great Michael Johnson spoke about that when I interviewed him. His father had to sit him and his brother down to mm. tell them how to act if they're accosted by the police. And he now is doing the same thing with his young son because his young son is getting to be a teenager. He's now going out on his own. And it struck him one day, he said, why should I have to do this just because of the color of my skin or the color of my family's skin? This is not right. And what that is the living experience of people in, in America, black people in America. And I don't know how many people are aware of this lady that was involved in January 6th with the storming of the Capitol, who came out and said she is not going to jail because she's white, she's blonde haired, she has a good job. Well, she's getting 60 days. But that is her mindset. 
That is what she grew up in. That is socializing that she got. That because she's white, there's nothing that's going to happen to her. And we have to get rid of that mindset. Susie Smith, I, I want to hear your perspective as, a, as an employer, someone who needs um, a, a strong and diverse workforce and, and how you feel this sport, horse racing, um, looks after its workforce in that respect and whether it, um, whether it seeks to, to employ a sufficiently diverse workforce. I think, I think um, from a trainer's point of view, um, as, uh, with the stable staff we have, we already do have quite a diverse workforce, but that doesn't let us off the hook at all because we haven't addressed anything, really, I don't think. I know we are starting to now um, since the murder of George Floyd. And I think that's because as predominantly white people, we haven't known what to do about it. And we haven't thought maybe it was something that we should have been getting involved in. But I think the reality is for us as employers, as individuals, um, we already have people of colour in the sport. Um, I only have some vague statistics on, of, of um, how many People that what the makeup might be, but it's looking at about eight to ten percent, and the same for our owners as well. So the fact we haven't addressed this, what message is that sending out to the people that are already in our sport? Forget about bringing people in, um, but I just worry that you know our silence is affecting the people we've already got. Sorry, so slightly abrupt end to that clip there. Uh, Susie Smith, uh, contributing to the Let's Talk About Race webinar, which I hosted earlier in the week and which featured Michael Holding, Shereen Daniels and uh, Tony Lang. I would urge you, if you have 90 minutes at any point, to uh, get a hold of the whole webinar and then you get a full sense of just how engaging and absorbing it was. Racingtogether.co.uk forward slash let's dash talk dash about dash race dash webinar dash replay. And then you can can watch it all. And now, as you, you caught me halfway through one of the Luck on Sunday pastries. And um, I've got to say, I've got no idea when these were bought, but I reckon it wasn't this morning. I'm wondering whether my next guest wishes rather he was at Cheltenham in preference to being here with us in in our studios in in West London. He is, of course, the man that has made the character of Jim McDonald in Coronation Street since 1989, one of the most recognisable in British drama. He is Charlie Lawson. Charlie, great to see you. Great to see you too, Nick. And I actually sacrificed my watching of the racing yesterday, driving down to see you. I could have been watching it. I wouldn't have been there. We are very honoured. It's fair to say that racing's played a pretty important part in your life, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I started off with ponies, um, you know, and all I wanted to do was go flat out. You know, my sister wanted to join the pony club, but I just wanted to get from A to B as quick as possible. Uh, We grew up watching Peter O'Sullivan and Grandstand, you know, every Saturday and the ITV7 latterly. And um, I've been a horse racing fan since the days of um, Ron Barry and the Dickler and Spanish Steps and all these old horses go seeing them around the national. And uh, so really, yeah, it's been a part of my life and it would be, uh, I mean, 
some people might think it's obvious, but one of the best things I do in life, probably better than an actor, is ride. You know, I'm a better rider than I consider myself to be an actor. And have you done much riding in your in your working life? Do you know what? I spend my time watching actors looking like buck agents on horseback, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and I think, well, he can't ride. I know him. He's a big wuss or whatever. Uh, and I have never, ever in all my career, probably because I'm always filmed in a bar beating the you know what out of someone, <laughs> and I'm not in the uh, you know I'm 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 not in these posh jobs where I'm required to wire a horse to ride a horse. But yeah, I do do it better than than anything else really. Of course, you were in posh jobs before before Coronation Street came along, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, I was I joined full time in 1989, but in 1980 or a couple of years before that, I was at the National Theatre. Don't you know, love? And um, I was asked to come into the street. And I was, I'd be ashamed to admit, I was so po-faced about the whole idea of joining a soap. I didn't know who anybody was, and I wasn't interested in doing that funny thing from the North. As I say, <laughs> were many other actors and actresses. I mean, now, of course, Ian McKellen has done it, and, and every other Tom, Dick yeah. and Harry, because they realise and respect that it's one of the greatest things that's ever been on television. Uh, when you joined in, in 89, did it immediately feel like home? Did you think, well, this is this is me, or, or was it a more transient? No, it felt feeling? really weird because it's a different parallel universe. In those days, there were still star. I mean, Pat Phoenix had left, but you know, there was only two. There was only it was only on twice a week, and there were only uh, was it nine, Tuesday and Thursday? Was it in those? I days? don't know Wednesday yeah. and Friday, whatever. Yeah. But you know, and there was there was only four channels, so we were getting between sort of fifteen and twenty million pe people. So half. Half of Britain knew who we were, and there were still stars. I mean, the first day I, I walked in, I sat in the wrong chair, you know, and Brian Mosley said, you can't sit there, that's Julie Goodyear's chair, <laughs> and stuffed. It was all a bit silly, but uh, anyway, there you go. Uh, what, what was it like immediately being recognised by everybody? Uh, bizarre, really. Um, I mean, the press office, Alison said to me or whatever, he said, look, if you've got any skeletons, Charlie, and I think you've a few, they're all going to come out. And I had a bucket full of them. <laughs> so that's the first thing happens. Your life changes completely. Your privacy goes. And in those days, the press, God bless them, they could do and say anything they wanted. Since Levinson, it's got a bit better. But in those days, they were just starting to hack your phones and all sorts of carry-on. So you really, you were fair game every Friday and Saturday night. But having said all that, the, the becoming famous is infin infinitely nicer than not. I mean, that's when racing took off for me. I was able then to just phone up a race course and say, I've got Sarah Lancashire on my arm here. I played Raquel or whatever, you know, and, and we just got into races. And we were racing from, I remember sharing the box, the, the Smurfit box at the King George um, when Eddy fell off Barton Bank. Is that right? Have I got yeah, that right? I'm right, sorry, Eddie. Yeah. I'm sorry, mate. <laughs> <laughs> One of the nicest boys in racing. Adrian Maguire at the last year. Yeah, uh, we, were in the, we were in the sponsor's box. So, but then we were able to go to Cheltenham. We used to, I was a member at Stratford Bangor, all these wee traces that the wee tracks that the McCains used to go to. And I used to go to Ginger's, got photographed with Rummy. Um, you know, and um and, and I got great tips from you know, I'm a, I was on Hay Cottage at sixty six to one, whenever it won round Ascot and you couldn't bloody see it in the fog. And we backed it in and went in at about thirty three to one and we'd got that. So Great stories and great opportunities it's given me in racing. And a great release for you from oh, yeah. 
from the pressures of the day job. Nobody gives a monkeys about you at, at maybe at Cheltenham Festival. They probably do because an awful lot of people there, unfortunately, don't really know a lot about racing. As you you know, it's changed a lot. But certainly in the smaller tracks, it's a haven of peace because people are more concerned about their horse and where their money's going than some idiot from the telly. Because you were so, you portray such a recognisable character, everybody knows or knew or knows Jim McDonald and and the catchphrases and the way that yeah. he intones everything. Did you find did you find it endearing or annoying when you know you would get repeatedly approached in the street? <laughs> Jim McDonald saw you are etc. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, no, back home I'm Charlie, you know, and they're very proud of me, and that's that's lovely. Only, I've only ever had one incident uh, in a bar where uh, action had to speak louder than words. Most of the time, it, they'll say it once, and you know, and then you'll say, "No, my name's Charlie." If they persist, then that's when they become a pain. But most of them just apologise and say, "Sorry, Charlie. Nice to meet you." You know, and and I've had many's a good night out and a few pints with good people. And as the nature of the character he was, you don't really get a hard time. Did you love the character? Yes, I did. I thought he was a brilliant character, and I thought the writers, um, given that they were thrown this time bomb, <laughs> they didn't know. They were four months ahead, and, and they didn't know there was a Northern Irish man going to come in, you know. So, oh, my bloody stuff was it in Mancunian, you know, and whatever. And that's, so I started putting, instead of saying good morning, I'd be saying, what about you? So all the writers didn't know what the hell was going on. So between them learning and me, uh, we had 10 good years out of 11. We agreed to, to, to part company, and I am reliably informed I am the most returned actor to a soap <laughs> having played the, playing the same character. So you've come back nine times. I think it's eight or nine or something, yeah. And what, what's, the, what's the likelihood of an... Well, he's in Australia at the moment um, with his girlfriend. Um, Sounds uh, we, nice. Yes, and she's about 25, and um, <laughs> that was a storyline. I'd stay there if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a, some people didn't like it, because what happened was I'd signed on to play Rebus in the world premiere of Ian Rankin's Inspector Rebus mm -hmm. on stage, and then Corrie came for me and said, look, we'll offer you this. I said, I want to work with Rankin and do uh, play Rebus, for God's sake, you know. And so they, Corey then said, OK, we'll come, we'll squeeze this storyline. That was in 2019, I think. So it was kind of a Marmite storyline, and he left, uh, and he went back to Australia, and who knows what might happen, you know. As long as the character's alive, then there's a chance he might be back. I don't know where he'd fit in nowadays, though. Have you still got your enthusiasm for, for acting? Oh God, yeah, that's what I'll do. I'm 62, Nick, and I'll be doing this till I'm 82. You know, you don't you don't retire as an actor. I mean, you look incredibly well. I know you've had difficulties with your health in the last few years. You, yeah, you had, you had a mini stroke on stage. I did, didn't yeah, you? on on stage, everything went blue. <laughs> I went deaf, and the next thing I knew, I was in the wings, hospital and all. But 20 minutes later, I was okay. But um, I went in for the scans, and I did I did a TIA, which. I won't bore you with the Latin name, but it's indeed a, a mini stroke. And it set me back for about, uh, well, for about six months, I, I was emotionally useless. If you showed me Desert Orchid winning the Whitbread, I would have been in floods on the floor. I couldn't control my emotions at all. 
and and somebody said, Charlie, why don't you go and see help? And like I'm a pretty sanguine guy, you know what I mean? But I did. And um, after a couple of chats with this lovely lady, um, I was fine, and I'm, I'm health-wise never been fitter. You, know? you you mentioned Desert Orchid winning the Whitbread, and I, I'm guessing you mentioned that because he was a horse that had particular. <laughs> there we are, as if by yeah. magic. We don't just throw this together. No, <laughs> um, a particular emotional resonance for you. Just just tell me why. I was delighted that David Ellsworth got that award because Elsie kept, th this horse here was a supreme athlete. He won, he won every distance carrying huge lumps of weight and he had to battle and he did battle up the hill here. Great commentary. Um, uh, but he, Elsie kept him fit. I think he had corns in his early years. But he, he, he to me, and I know the other Mr. McGrath from time form would close his eyes and say, rubbish. You know who I mean? Because I think if you look at his stats, look at how many races he ran in for how long, carrying lumps of weight for years and years and years. To me, he's the greatest equine specimen, greatest racehorse that um, we will ever see. And I know Frankel is Frankel and Secretariat and all the rest of it, but over the jumps to me is the best. I mean, everybody says, to, uh, Jim would say, well, of course, they had to change the handicap system for Arkle. Well, I think Desi, on his day, would give Arkle a great run around Kempton. There was, there was certainly the, the, something of the real folk hero about Desert Orchid. I don't think I'll ever see again in my lifetime, I think, cause, just because the sport moves on and yeah. it's not quite as close to popular culture as it was in the, in the late 80s yeah. when you were there and I was there at, at Kempton. But the way that the public cleaved to this horse was amazing. Yeah, and I mean, I, and I, you know, we we forget Colin Brown. Did, you know, Colin started off on him, and Mr. Sherwood. Hopefully, we'll see you at Ludlow Sherwood if you mind <laughs> returning my emails. <laughs> but um, you know, Simon did great. Simon, you know, let that horse do what it wanted to do. Some say that's very brave. Others say it's foolish. But Simon did a great job. And then, of course. Um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Happy Man, Mr. Dunwoody took over, you know, and as we all know, the greatest cheer he got was when he got up from his final fall, you know. Uh, he, he lit the nation up sporting-wise, and I'm delighted that David Ellsworth has been recognised, not only for his flat and jump stuff, but to me, he and Richard Burridge, great credit to them all um, for letting us have Des for so long. And so for you now, does racing still hold the same fascination, the same fixation as it did in the 80s and 90s? Yeah. I don't go to the course as much because I don't get as many invites. And so I would I would go to the Beecher Chase meeting rather than the, the big meeting. I would go to the Countryside Day at Cheltenham rather than the, the festival. The festival is brilliant if I'm a guest. And I'm not fishing here, folks. It's just the truth. Because if I'm out down there, you, you, I, ju I can't get to see a race. Yeah. You know, I can, there's no use me going into the, the Arkle bar and trying to watch the race. I just can't, or the, into the Senator, or whatever, Senate, whatever it is, Centaur. Because you just get completely mobbed. But see, on a quiet day, like, you know, it was 33,000, still a great crowd at Cheltenham. Fantastic. But crowd, it holds it? 60 or 66. Yeah. And it's an infinitely nicer for me. But I'm happy at Stratford, I'm happy at Hereford, I'm happy at Sedgefield, Cartmel, Utoxeter, 
Head up, my local, you know what I mean? You talk to her, I love. Um, so all of them really, racing is, is, is brilliant. And, and I wish I'd been at Leopardstown. That to me, Frodon was one of the greatest performances. Not simply because he jumped them into the- You mean the down gr- Royal? Down Royal. You're local. Excuse me. You're local. Lovings. Forgive me. <laughs> um, but at down Royal, he, he, the horse came back at him and I think stuck his head in front of him and Frodon battled on and won. I thought that was a great performance. And, and if he gets it right, uh, Mr. Nichols on the King George, watch him, because he'll be there or thereabouts. I mean, so growing up, were Down Royal and Down Patrick part of your, part of your life? Would you go quite regularly? No, we, because I grew up, you must remember, I grew up in the 70s and, and all that lot back home, and um, there, were, there, were, there were more things in my parents' mind um, than, than going racing. And they weren't really interested anyway, so I would watch it on the TV, and then latterly. So was it? Was it? Did it skip a generation? Was it from your grandparents really then? From your uh, interest? No, it was. It was. It. It just was. It just came out of me. You just I loved mean, it. I mean, I. You know, my mother and father didn't weren't really into horse racing mm. at all, although they used to go, and watch. Um, you know, uh, the the young Pat Taff and my aunt had a, two horses called Conkaley, a racehorse, and Fairgale, who were fair. So my auntie had racehorses with Jimmy Quinn, and Pat Taff rode them. But then you, you, move, you move to my side, and they didn't really give a monkeys. Yeah. So I don't, where it came from, I don't know. And as you say, Enniskillen in the, in the 1970s, there were a lot more pressing concerns on, on people's minds. What was it like growing up there then? Well, I left there in 67 because I was sent to boarding school in Belfast, so I was really away all the time. But, I mean, you know, my parents had, uh, my father had licensed to carry a rifle and a personal protection weapon, a handgun. He had three shotguns. There were floodlights outside the house, all that sort of stuff. And I was up in Belfast um, trying to avoid um, trouble as best as we could up there, and everybody was touched by it. So I didn't really go racing until um, properly until I went to when I was at Guildhall Drama School in the 1980s. I used to every set, well not every Saturday, but off I go to Esher to Sandown, and I loved Sandown Park. Oh, so it was a great race course. So I started really in the in the in the early 80s, really going racing all through the 80s, and then of course you arrive in Corrie, the world's your oyster. Everybody wants you to come and visit them. Because you're knowledgeable, you know, uh, I got the opportunity to, thanks to um, Ginger and, and his son Don, I got a chance to ride in a race at Wincanton, uh, which I'd always wanted to do, and, and I did it. Uh, I think um, I think Venetia might have won it, but I did beat my great pal Brendan Powell. Did you? Which I was delighted with. And Did he never you? lets me forget it. But, I mean, that to me was my biggest achievement of my life so far. Riding in that charity Riding race. in that. Because I had to train. I rode out work for Don and Ginger. Um, my three lots, Paddington John, Bankers Draft and Jack Reef, who carted me and Ginger swore, I'll tell you in a minute. But um, that, that was my greatest achievement that year.